I do believe you will find this is more than true. In the morning you awake, head buried, up to here, horizontal inside. The rain pours down, like there is no up or down, just here. The inside of a car wash stalled out, no egress, waterfalls. Clean, dirty water. The rain surrounds the house hits the roof and splays out into pools absorbed by earth. A question of in and out. No rhythm. It is all too much. This egg will crack. You dream, half awake. The rupture, days. A dream of leek soup, dripping through from above. A violation. And yet, simultaneously there is a breach. Water enters the garage from above and falls to the concrete. The unforeseen, having been seen, cannot be unseen. It is unfortunate. The next day, Ruffer called. He asked, Do you want to come up here? Your roof is a devastation. Just over the other side, branches, humus, brambles, the odd tree, moss, penguins, a tree monkey. The penguins, flightless birds, inching closer to the sky by migration, look upon you coolly. But there is sorrow in the lone monkey's eyes, for they have seen things. Well, said the roofer, what are you going to do about it? And yet, you took the exam at the industrial square, where they examine applicants for fit and received a position with no time. How to be and yet not be, the question unanswered, then a call. I have a weird one for you. And so it began. Once or twice a month, the undoable, done. Budget miracles. We need you to dress in a fancy suit and attend an auction. You will bid as directed by the client who will further instruct you at the site. Deal bargain struck. A scam, said a friend. No doubt. Abetted by the largest of industries, the buying and selling of things and options thereof. The shady side of town. A convention hall inside a hotel. Poor lighting. Dirty carpets. You meet the henchman of the client. Regular Joes, not millionaires like you. Dressed for success. When the auctioneer points at you, raise your paddles to bid. At the end, wait around, then quietly exit. You are issued a paddle. You settle in at the front. Beside you, an unshaven, caffeinated man waits. I tell you, they got a lot of stuff, and there is some good to be got. But some of these people, I mean, look at them. It begins. The man beside you starts at attention. The auctioneer starts the show. A few things sell. One does not. The next item stalls out. A Picasso. A dirty napkin. The auctioneer calls. He calls. He points at you. 
You raise your paddle for war. The bidding starts anew. It trickles out. You have won. A Picasso for 16,000 or thereabouts. And yet, the auction continues. You win an ugly painting once owned by a bit player in a forgotten sitcom of the previous decade. A steal, says the auctioneer, who is in the know. It does not make up for the loss of respect from the man beside you, which drains away suddenly after an oriental rug with a large pronounced stain on it is put up for bid. Who would, he starts as no bids are offered, and the auctioneer points at you, and you raise your paddle, and the man beside you inches away in disgust, his mouth agape. For you are a winner, a person in the know. Can the others not see that while they raise their paddles and then the auctioneer points at them, in your case the auctioneer points at you, and only then do you raise your paddle? But they do not. Some things are hard to see if one does not look. Then it is finally over. You try not to mingle. A woman in plain clothes tries to divert your attention. Enjoy your winnings, she says. Thank you, you say, as you move casually away from her. It would never work out. How could you know for sure if she likes you or just your pretend millions? But on the way home, you wonder if she was in the know was she pretending to be a common person? Hunting for pretend millions? Paid to do so for some purpose beyond those in the know? Did she raise her paddle before or after the bid? How can you be sure who anyone is these days? Two bit players on a treadmill. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is Please note, the new number is... You're listening to the David Raffin Podcast. This is the podcast you were looking for. No, you'll have to find your own way out. A movie starts. Warner Brothers logo comes on screen. A woman's voice says, Logo center screen. It is a strange voice, I think, aesthetically. The voice reads the text appearing on screen. In space, survival is impossible. The voice starts to describe the actors on screen and the actions. People float in space. One dances to music. One is frustrated. I am pleased the voice will be explaining facial expressions as we go. The film stops cold. The blackness of space is replaced with the blackness of nothing. Two completely different blacknesses. Someone says, They're fixing the sound. It was playing the soundtrack for the visually impaired headsets. The film begins again at the beginning. I watch the film, regretting what could have been. As the film passed the previous stopping point, I am left to wonder what the narrator would say probably information to enrich my movie-going experience. In space, narration is possible, but optional and limited. But you leave the theater, treading to the life of boxes beyond. At the checkout, the cashier resembled a movie star who checked you out angrily. The gaze hard yet centered. Are they angry because they resemble movie stars mashed together to form a grocery clerk? for the purpose of serving their line? 
Or are they angry because they cannot forget the roles of the past renewed? The receipt outlines the savings and wishes for you to come again as the clerk turns to confront the next in line while you turn and steal away.
Many highly sensitive people are disturbed by remains found on the street. It is a sign of high intelligence. But even amongst the remains found on the street, solitary remains, abandoned and forgotten, there are layers. A sweater is one thing. During a hot time, it is peeled off, discarded, lost, forgotten until a time in which its location is no longer known. A hat may be taken by the wind, a natural theft, unrecoverable. Some items are more remarkable than others. The more unexplainable an item is, the more remarkable it becomes. It is a natural thing to wonder. It takes a highly intelligent person to be disturbed by these things. The kind of person who would naturally think about the backstory, which must necessarily exist. For every lost item, there is a history, an immutable but mysterious past, made all the worse by the fact that the person viewing the remains will likely never know. Amongst the saddest items found on the street are solitary items, for solitary things are the saddest of things. This includes gloves, mittens, the single lens from eyeglasses one-leg warmer, socks, or rather, sock, shoes, shoe, and the saddest of all, a single baby shoe, bleached in the sun or frozen in the winter. Yes, a single baby shoe is the saddest item found on the street, regardless of weather. From whence does it come? Was it discarded by a baby who being poorly supervised, and is that not just a terrible thing to say, that a baby is poorly supervised? For a caretaker is a harried person and cannot always be watching a baby when a baby, naturally, will engage in foolhardy and antisocial behaviors, such as discarding one precious shoe. A baby, being inexperienced at life, will not necessarily see the value in retaining a quality baby shoe. To many babies, shoes are simply a burden, and the removal of one shoe is the removal of half of a burden. It is a freeing exercise, a fierce act of antisocial rebellion, an act against the supposition that a baby must wear a shoe. That a baby must wear two shoes is too much too early. 
being that most babies cannot even walk. Against the fact that most babies have feet, which grow at an extraordinary rate, the shoe becomes a confinement. All intelligent and sensitive people rebel against confinements, and one foot is often bigger than the other by some degree, and you can't expect a baby to understand such an unreasonable attribute. Such was the case with the baby who shall come to be known hereafter as Limpin Lenny. Limpin Lenny willfully discarded his shoe, just one. He was a renegade, but not yet a completist. He was still very immature. In due time, a complication set in. It did not take a great amount of time, but from the standpoint of a baby, any amount of time is a great amount of time, because the view of the passage of time is regulated by the length of time which one can look back at one's own past, the only past someone can look back upon. To a baby, one minute is akin to an entire month. It is why these are called the formative years. Because, though looking back, it seems to be a short time, it is the longest period of time a person will ever experience. One day on Saturday is not just one day on Saturday every time one day on Saturday occurs. Remember that. The great tragedy is that this occurred exactly at the time when Lenny was learning to walk. At this important time, concerning questions of balance and gait, things are learned which simply cannot be unlearned. It is because of this Lenny became limpin' Lenny. Forever, he would be known as this because forever he would walk with a limp. A matter of timing, for Lenny had learned to walk wearing only one shoe, knocking him slightly off balance for the rest of his life. Later, specialists would be consulted. Every one of them, after therapy, would declare that there was nothing wrong with Lenny necessitating a limp, but that the limp had been learned. Lenny did not know how to walk without a limp, so the limp stayed, and so did the nickname. Various things, of course, were tried in therapy. Par for the course, he was given another shoe. It was difficult to walk with two shoes. That is a skill most people take for granted, but not Lenny. Lenny was a fighter. They also tried giving him a shoe for his previously bare foot, which was higher than the shoe he wore on his normally shoed foot. Nothing worked. It did not bring him down, if anything, a little adversity strengthened his resolve. Perhaps he became a better man. But it is impossible to say because he became the man he became and he did not become the man he did not become. I would like to make that explicit. And what would Lenny be if he did not have his limp? Not limp in Lenny, certainly. Just Lenny. And who the hell was he? He did become a ladies' man, for the ladies were attracted to his... Certain something. His devil-may-care attitude, his strength against adversity, his uniqueness, his flair and style. Yes, the ladies loved Lenny, but Lenny always wondered, do they love me? Do they really love me? Or do they love my triumph against adversity? Or do they love my inner core of unflappable confidence? For in addition to not being able to walk without a limp, Lenny was also noted for not being able to flap. It was remarked upon far less often. 
Lenny had no answers, because he was not the man he did not become. And now it was too late to become that man. So while the ladies loved Lenny, and God knows why, Lenny was perplexed, for he did not feel that he could properly connect with these women. For what did he have in common with them? And how could they ever truly know him? This bothered him for a long time, but he did not let it hold him back. He was a man who always looked forward because looking backwards is more difficult when you are off balance. It is at this point in the story that you consider Charlotte, for Charlotte is a very special woman. You're very lucky because you became aware of Charlotte slightly before Lenny, which frankly is a little bit unfair, depending on your perspective. Though you did introduce them, and that gives you a certain point of pride. I mean, you have your faults, but you're a good person. Don't let anyone take that away from you, including yourself. I like you, if that means anything to you. Charlotte, I would go so far as to say, was meant for Lenny. I don't mean to be crass, and I don't mean to draw wild conclusions, but they were really meant for each other. Because Charlotte, you see, as you know, is known by her friends as Limpin' Charlotte. Because one day on the street, when she was so much younger that time went by at a different speed, that very special time of life, the formative years, Charlotte was out on the street and she found a single shoe, placing it upon her foot as a kind of precocious Cinderella. She learned to walk wearing only one shoe. She was that kind of girl, strong-willed, unflappable, also unflappable. It was a Saturday. And because it was Lenny's lost shoe, the opposite shoe, which she wore on the opposite foot, because frankly, for all the talk, neither one of them was that big of a rebel, she had a limp which was opposite of Lenny's limp, which meant that when they walked down the street, it was a sight to behold. Because who among us does not like to occasionally look up from our own immodest concerns to see the unmistakable gate of true love? No one. That's who. You have been listening to episode one of More Than True by David Raffin. This declaration will suffice until future renumbering naturally occurs. Background music for this episode is by Kevin McLeod and also The Juanitos. The song Oriental Fever by The Juanitos is from their album Exotica. Visit davidraffin.com for refreshments.